you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 51 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you so much for praying for me in this transitional time. Still looking for a job, got some leads, um, but please continue to pray for me and my family. And please continue to pray for my uh, podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. We really appreciate it. Well, before we get into the show notes, I just want to let you know that I have a new single out called War. And it's available on CD Baby and iTunes and Spotify. So I really want to encourage you to go check that out. And if it's a blessing to you, please leave a positive review on my iTunes channel uh, for Phil, Phil Baker Music. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate y'all's encouragement and support. Well, this is the second part of a new series that I've started on the Beatitudes. Last time we looked at the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And today we'll be looking at blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We'll not only look at what the early Christians said about that beatitude, but we'll also look at how that beatitude is played out, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament with followers of Jesus, and then see how Jesus himself played out this beatitude. I think this is going to be a good and tough episode, and I pray that you will be blessed by it. And if this episode has been a blessing to you, I'd really encourage you to leave a positive review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Doing so will greatly help me out as well as uh, reviewing my new album, which is also on iTunes in different places, this new album called The Shadows EP. If you've listened to it and you like those songs, please do me a favor and head over to iTunes and leave a positive review and rating. And also, if you've read my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, please head over to Amazon and also leave a rating and review there. That will help others so much and me as well. If you want to contact me, you can go to my website, philsbaker.com, and you can find my uh, email contact there, which is email philsbaker at gmail.com. I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And if you have any questions about this episode or any episodes that we talk about or maybe an ethical question, send me or BDK an email and we will be happy to answer your question on Ready With An Answer, which we do once a month. And finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. All right, let's go ahead and get episode 51 rolling.
Well, there are certain things that everyone shares in common, certain things that bind us all together, certain experiences that we all share. And unfortunately, one of those things is loss. Eventually, we will lose everything and everyone we love. And because of that, we all live our lives passing through the difficult stages of grief. Now, people have put together different stages and different steps, but the most common uh, deal with five stages of grief. And the first is denial. It's the shock reaction. This can't be true. This is not happening to me. It's where we refuse to believe what has happened. Like I remember in the few days after my little schnauzer dog died several years ago, he would jump up in the bed every morning to greet me, you know, jump up on the bed and start licking my face, trying to get me to wake up and feed him or play with him a little bit. And I remember in those few days after he, after he passed that I'd just be wondering where, where's my, where's my little boy? Where, and it would hit me, man, I'm never going to see that again. Like that is, that's tough. That's tough. So we go through denial, but we also go through anger. And this is when resentment over the loss grows. We may ask questions like, why me? Why my child? This is not fair. And we direct blame toward God, toward others, and ourselves. We feel agitated, irritated, moody, and on edge. And then the third stage is bargaining. This is when we try to make a deal, insisting that things be the way they used to be. Like, God, if you heal my little girl, then I'll never drink again. Uh, we call a temporary truce with God. And the next stage is depression. It's when hopelessness really starts to set in. We say, yeah, this, this is me. This is really happening. And the courage to admit our loss brings sadness. And like I said, this hopelessness. But this is not necessarily bad. It's, it's actually a good thing that we get to the point where we cry and we feel these hard, hard waves breaking over us of sadness because the next stage is acceptance. Now we can face our loss calmly. We accept the things we can't change. It's, it's a time of silent reflection and regrouping. And that is when we begin to feel true comfort, true comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Now, my dad, who's a Christian counselor, would say those who experience a traumatic loss never really stop grieving. It's not that we necessarily go through these stages in order. It's not a chronological type of thing, but it is a cyclical type thing where something, maybe you smell uh, your wife's perfume and it brings back this flood of memories to you. Maybe you see a car that your loved one used to drive, same type of car, and it just hits you again. Um, maybe tax season comes around and you're, you're struggling with your income and a, f a feeling of anger hits you. God, why are you letting this happen? 
these things can be cyclical. And so it's important though that we do we do acknowledge them for what they are. This is a normal part of life. But it's important that we continue to press ourselves toward mourning and toward acceptance then. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, unfortunately, in our society, uh, we have adopted almost a Revelation 18 verse 7 approach toward grief, toward mourning. This is speaking of, of Babylon the Great and John the Revelator, the writer, the Apostle John describes Babylon and it says, she says in her heart, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. We don't really like thinking about loss. You can see it in our television programming. When someone dies, generally within just a few seconds, someone tells a joke. And we don't like, and there's nothing wrong with laughter. Laughter is, is, is a fine thing in and of itself, but there's a time to grieve. And that doesn't need to be cut short. We live in a society where death, dying, is kind of swept under the rug. It's, it's not as in your face as it is in other countries. And yet we still deal with this loss. We can refuse to see it. It's like we live in denial, but those who live in denial, that, that grief often manifests itself in our bodies in an unhealthy type way. We cannot avoid loss. And so the challenge is for us to hopefully, courageously um, confront pain and loss, as hard as that is. Cyprian wrote in 250, Cyprian, who was well acquainted with sorrow and grief, he was hunted down and martyred. Cyprian wrote this. The psalmist wrote, God is nearest to them that are contrite in heart, and he will save the lowly in spirit. Also in the same place, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but out of them all the Lord will deliver them. And of the same matter in Job, naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked also shall I go under the earth. For the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, as it has pleased the Lord so it is done. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all these things which happened to him, Job sinned in nothing with his lips in the sight of the Lord. And concerning this same thing in the gospel, according to Matthew, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, we are all going to go through suffering. We are all going to go through incredible suffering in our lives. And we should mourn for that, but we should also mourn for our sin and for the sin of others. King David was a man after God's own heart. And one of the ways that you frequently see him identifying himself early on in his life is the servant of God. He's God's servant. Once he became king, though, there appears that his identity began to shift away from God's servant to the king. And 
later in his life, serving in king, one season after he had many victories, the armies of Israel went out to war, but David did not go with them. He decided to stay in his palace as king. And there one night on the on his rooftop, he looked over and he saw a woman bathing. This, as you know, is Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba was not single. Bathsheba was the wife of one of David's friends, one of the mighty men of God, this man Uriah. This was one of David's friends. He certainly knew who Uriah's wife was. He sees her bathing and he tells his guards, bring her to me. What are they going to do? They know this man is about to commit adultery, but they choose to do as he says. They bring Bathsheba to David's room. David sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. Now, this is a big problem because David has, he has committed adultery. This is a sin punishable by death. So David decides, you know what? I'm going to, I can fix this. I can fix this. I'm not going to admit this. I'm not going to confess and plead for mercy. I'm going to cover this up. So he has Joab, sorry, he has Uriah the Hittite brought in from the fields, brought in from war. And he encourages Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba. But Uriah is a man with character and he tells David, look, I can't be having relations with my wife, enjoying, celebrating life while my friends and my brothers are out dealing with death. No, I I won't do it. So David tries to get him drunk and yet Uriah still will not sleep with Bathsheba. He's still choosing to stay in solidarity with his brothers and friends out in the battlefield. And this infuriates David, and it scares him. So he gives a note to a messenger to give to Joab, the commander of the army, to put Uriah in the front lines and to confront the enemy. And right when the battle is at its worst for all the army to back away and leave Uriah there to die. And that's what they do. David has his friend murdered to try to cover up this affair that he has had. But he doesn't get away with it. He thinks he's gotten away with lying, with coveting, with adultery, with murder. One might argue stealing, like he took his friend's wife. This guy is committing several, breaking several of the Ten Commandments. He thinks he's gotten away with it. But though most people do not know what is going on, God knows everything that's going on, and God has a prophet, a man by the name of Nathan, And God sends Nathan to David. And this is just absolutely courageous. Nathan goes right up to David and confronts him, tells him a story, a parable about a 
a poor man who only has one little lamb and he treats it like a kid, basically. He eats at his table and, you know, she's like in the, lays in the bed, you know, like with him. Like it's, it's, it's his pet. Very, very good pet. That's like his, his main possession. And there's also a rich man, though, who has thousands of lambs, thousands of sheep. A visitor uh, visits the, um, the rich man's house, and the rich man decides he's going to throw a celebration. He's going to throw a party. He's going to be hospitable like he's supposed to be. But instead of using one of his thousands of sheep, he goes and he takes the poor man's pet. Now, David is infuriated by this. He says, this man surely deserves to die, but he's going to pay back four times what he stole. And this is citing a law from Exodus, I believe, chapter 22, verse 1. If someone steals a sheep, they got to pay it back fourfold. And Nathan looks at David and he says, you are that man. You are the man. And David gets overwhelmed with grief because Nathan tells him that because of this sin, that boy is going to die. That child is going to die. And David is just overwhelmed with sin, or overwhelmed, sorry, with sorrow. And he mourns and he weeps. The boy dies. But David is comforted by the Lord. And you can see a testimony of this in Psalm 32. David, kind of giving a testimony, says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fervent, the fervor heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. David finally owned up to it and he mourned and he confessed. And though he did suffer loss, he was comforted by the Lord. Clement of Alexandria was basically the new member's uh, pastor in Alexandria, Egypt, around 195 AD. Uh, and this is what he wrote about this beatitude, blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. He says this, with reason it is written, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, because they who have repented of their former, former evil life shall attain to, quote, the calling. It's really interesting. He's saying, basically, in order for you to attain the calling God has on your life, you're going to have 
to mourn, in order for God to open up to you some of his greatest plans for you, you're going to have to mourn. You're going to have to mourn over your sin and the sins of others to really get the heart for people that God has for those same people. We see this dynamic play out in the life of the Apostle Saul, who then became known as the Apostle Paul. Starting in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any Christians, any those belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up, enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Let's pause there for a moment and think about what we just read. So Saul, who is zealous for the law, he believes that he is absolutely right in persecuting Christians. He thinks that Jesus was a false prophet trying to deceive the people. And these people that are, that are followers of Jesus are, are wreaking havoc in the world. He thinks he is right and he is completely wrong. He's trying to persecute them to their death, trying to have them tortured And then he meets the God he thinks he has been worshiping his whole life. He actually meets God. He meets Jesus there. And he's blinded. He's blinded because Jesus came into the world to open the eyes of those who are blind and that those who claim they would see would become blind. And so... Paul, who thought he could see, is now blinded, and he realizes that he was wrong. How does he respond to this? Instead of just trying to comfort himself, going to a bar, getting drunk, or getting high, or uh, reading a self-help book about positive thoughts, Paul mourns for three days. He doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink a single thing. Now I've done fasts. I've done some food fasts and that's tough, but I've always had liquid. (laughs) Maybe I'm a wimp, but I've always had liquid. And man, I cannot imagine not even drinking for three days, not having a drop of water. He is intentionally mourning over his sin. And yet in verse 10, God sends a disciple named Ananias to go to Paul. The Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight 
and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up, and he was baptized, and he took food, and he was strengthened." It's amazing how Paul lived out this beatitude. He, after realizing that he was totally wrong and that he had been persecuting Christians, persecuting Christ, he mourned. He didn't just try to comfort himself. He mourned. But because of that, God was his comforter. And God sent him on an incredible mission for him. Saul immediately became a powerful ambassador for the kingdom of God. Saul immediately began to reflect the heartbeat of Jesus to save the lost and immediately went and started preaching to the Jews there in Damascus to turn them to God and immediately began to receive the same kind of persecution that Jesus did for shining light in the darkness. And yet he continued to courageously follow Jesus. You know, our calling is to become like Jesus. Our calling is to be his ambassadors to the world, to look like Jesus. So as we begin to wrap up, let's think, how does this beatitude point us to Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, 2 Peter verses, chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So understand there that Jesus' heart is for no one, no one to perish, for no one to be eternally destroyed, but for everyone to come to repentance, everyone. The men who crucified him, the men and women that were shouting, crucify him, those that betray him, he wants all to come to repentance. And this This passage in 2 Peter 3 is really reflecting the heartbeat of the Lord God from Ezekiel 33, where God tells tells Ezekiel, say to them, 
As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. So turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God desires no one to perish, but all to come to repentance. And you see this also in Jesus the day that he's approaching the city. The, approaching the city in the last week of his life. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says that when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known on this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that Luke added in the first sentence before the quote, the way Jesus was saying these words, because think about it. If we didn't have that, that one phrase that as he saw the city, he wept over it. How would you interpret Jesus saying these words? That the days will come upon Jerusalem when their enemies will throw up a barricade against them and surround them and hem you in, hem you in on every side. They're going to level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. Can you hear that? Do you hear that tone? That's not the tone that Jesus had because he's weeping. He is grieving over these people that are rejecting their calling. He's grieving over these people that are welcoming their destruction. Do you remember at the crucifixion scene when Pilate tells the chief leaders of the Jews that Jesus is innocent and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on our heads and even on our children. These people are out of their mind. And instead of Jesus celebrating their destruction, he weeps over it. I got to tell you, that is really hard for me. Because when people hurt my family or they hurt my friends and then those people who are the initiators of that hurt suffer, I got to tell you that sometimes makes me feel good. That makes me feel good. And that's not the heartbeat of Jesus. It's not. Jesus doesn't celebrate when people incur judgment. Jesus weeps over that. Last passage in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. The writer of Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications 
with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. This amazing passage talking about Jesus as a high priest weeping for us. Weeping as he intercedes for us. And it also talks about him crying loudly to the one who was able to save him from death. And the picture we get there of Jesus is him in the garden as he is overcome with sorrow to the point of death, grieving so passionately that drops of blood are coming from his brow, saying, Father, if there's any way for this cup to be taken from me, let it be done, yet not my will, your will be done. And Hebrews says that Jesus was heard because of his piety. And that would seem to imply that God took the cup away. But that's not what it's saying. Because Jesus was crucified. The cup was not taken away. And yet, he was heard because he because he was willing to be crucified he was able to be resurrected because he was willing to let his enemies crush him he is the stone which the builders rejected that become became the cornerstone and those who fall on him will be crushed but those upon whom he falls are broken to pieces He was, he was heard because he remained faithful even to the point of death. Without the crucifixion, there can be no resurrection. But because of the resurrection, we have a hope that is an anchor for our souls. We have a hope beyond the grave. We have a hope that is greater than the pain of the worst loss. And so we can grieve with hope. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God bless you. You don't delight death of the wicked so when I delight in the death of the wicked I am them I am them you don't delight in the pain of the wicked so when I delight the pain of the wicked, I am them, I am them, so break my heart over what breaks yours, let me weep for what you weep for, change my ways, Jesus make me pure. Break my heart, make it just like yours. 
don't rejoice when the sinners are suffering so when i rejoice when the sinners are suffering i am them yes i am I am them Yes, I am them So break my heart Over what breaks yours Let me weep For what you weep for Change my ways Jesus, make me pure Break my heart Make it just like yours you weep for us You weep for us And you weep for them You weep for them And you died for us You died for us you died for them you died for them so break my heart over what breaks yours let me weep for what you weep for change my ways Jesus make me Break my heart, make it just like yours Break my heart, over what breaks yours Let me weep, for what you weep for Change my ways, Jesus make me pure Break my heart, make it just like yours Break my heart just like yours Break my heart Make it just like yours